We've got something of a um, a unique sort of passage before us this morning. We're looking at Exodus chapters uh, 13, 14, and 15. Basically, what we've got are two chapters of story, just picking up where where Tim left off last week after the chapters or after the Passover. So two chapters of story, and then a song. Right there, right in the middle of all this story, we've got 21 verses of singing. You know, I remember um, as a kid reading through Lord of the Rings uh, for the first time, uh, how, how annoyed I was every time I got to one of the songs in the text. You know what I'm talking about? It's like this, this action-packed story, and then, then the characters are getting chased by black riders all over the place and all this, and all of a sudden, there's just a song uh, thrown, thrown right in there, like three pages of poetry. You know, all in italicized font, iambic pentameter, all that. It's like, what's going on here? You know, so as a kid, I would always just, you know, quickly flip through them. Just wouldn't, wouldn't read them. I would just skip them and try to get back to where the action started again. I can see kind of the faces of some of you who are Tolkien purists out there just blanching <laughs> at the thought that someone would desecrate the text, text like that. And I'll be honest with you, I agree right now. Uh, it, it's not right to read the books that way. I, my only excuse is I was in seventh grade at the time. I made a lot of bad decisions back then. So I'm a man. I've put aside childish things. Because now I realize that the songs in the text are, are not just like extras, you know, that are thrown in there for the sake of filling space. They're, they're a vital part of the narrative. In fact, when it comes to the songs of the Bible, you could make the case that they are the purpose of the narrative, the narrative's goal, its end. Not just, you know, to inform us or, or entertain us, but to bring us into a posture of worship, to, to shape our hearts into this, this posture of those who not only know God or know about God, but those who delight in God. Really, every time we encounter one of these songs in Scripture, what we are encountering is an invitation, a call to worship. That's what these are. A call for the, for the readers to stop hearing about God and start singing to God. It, it's like the, the songs kind of force you to do this in, in, in a way because, you know, stories, stories can be received passively. Like you just you, you sit there, you read them or you hear them, you get the main point, you move on. In, in, in a story, you are an observer, not a participant, a viewer, not a player. But songs in the Bible really start to blur those categories for us. You know what I mean? Songs in the Bible are participatory. Songs, you know, they, they, they pull the reader into the story. That's what they do. It's like all of a sudden you're just, you're reading this out loud and then you're, you find yourself th- saying things like, blessed be the name of the Lord, mighty in power, great in salvation, from your own mouth, your own lips. Songs take those of us, you know, who would be happy to just kind of stand off to the side, over by the punch bowl, holding a glass of punch, tapping our toes. Songs just walk right up to us and they just like pull us onto the dance floor. You know what I mean? They, they force us to do that. Don't just observe the goodness of God. Taste it. Don't just hear about this God who saves in mighty ways. Sing to him. This is what songs do in the Bible. This is what our passage does today explicitly. Really, the, the last verse of our passage reads like a command. Sing to the Lord, we read, for he has triumphed gloriously. 
the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the note that that, that we end on, a, a call to worship, a call that every single one of us needs to hear. Sing imperative to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. We need this call. You know, as, as we've mentioned all along through this series of, of Exodus, Moses didn't just um, write this book for the sake of, you know, writing a history book. Like, oh, I just, I'm getting old, I better record my memoirs for the, so, so everyone knows what happened. No, he wrote this book and the other first five books of the Bible for the sake of the next generation. And the generation after that, and the generation after that. Remember, these first readers of Exodus, the ones that Moses has in mind when he writes all of this, they were facing really a daunting task. God had called this generation to conquer the land of Canaan. And remember, up to this point, uh, they, they were basically just... You know, this huge band, very, very high in population, but just kind of a band of nomadic herdsmen wandering in, in the wilderness. Like, they didn't have territory of their own. They had never done any sort of prolonged military campaign, never conquered a city. But now they're standing on the shores of the Jordan River, the, the border of this land of promise, the land of Canaan, and God has called them to cross over and conquer all of it. I mean, we're talking fortified cities they're going to have to deal with here. Big, tall walls, massive warriors, experienced armies. This is a daunting task that they were faced with. And that task really should be the background we keep in mind when we read the book of Exodus. This would be, you know, the fear that was kind of on the minds of the people when they first heard this book read to them. And to prepare them, this generation, for that daunting task before them, Moses calls that generation to worship. He calls them to look backward in our passage, to stand on the the shores of the Red Sea with their fathers and with their mothers and to sing a song with them. This is what will prepare them to conquer when they learn how to worship. Not when they, you know, learn how to do really good siege warfare or some sort of advanced military tactics. It's when they learn how to delight in the God who fights for them. When they learn how to shout God's name and blast out his praise on trumpets, that is when the walls will come a-tumbling down. So what about us? Can we learn to sing this song with them? Do we need to? You know, every day, uh, especially when I talk to young people, I am, I'm reminded about just how difficult it is to follow Jesus faithfully in our culture. You've got all sorts of forces working against you if you want to walk on the path of Jesus. You've got to learn how to swim against the current of, of popular beliefs and, and philosophy. You've got to face the potential of being misunderstood and mislabeled for your beliefs by those who, who just don't, don't understand them. You've got to face the very real possibility of missing out on a lot of fun and pleasure for your decision to follow Jesus. You've got to deal with, uh, maybe hardest of all, just the reality of your own sin and, and the darkness of your own heart, your own inclination towards evil, your own temptations. I mean, this is a daunting task for this generation, an intimidating one. Jesus promised his followers that this would be difficult. 
So what do we need to hear if each one of us, and then us as a community, is going to live this out faithfully? What do we need to learn? I think exactly what we see in this story right here, exactly what we hear in this call at the end of the passage, a call to see God and worship. If we are going to conquer, then we need to learn how to sing. So, let's begin. First the story, and then the song, starting with chapter 13, verse 1, Rituals of Remembering. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Consecrate meaning set apart. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of this place. That would be the Passover that just, that just happened. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, which is actually about this time of year, actually, so springtime, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you so long ago with Abraham, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. And now he describes it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on a seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all of your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt." And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at an appointed time from year to year. So God is establishing a holiday here, a tradition. Verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? Why are we always doing this with our donkeys? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. From the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, the Passover, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, all the firstborns of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So kind of a weird start to our, our passage this morning. You know, it's not every Sunday we could talk about the best way to, to break a donkey's neck, but here we are. And, and if all of these, you know, these ceremonies about the firstborn and what you do with, you know, getting all the leaven out of the territory and all that, if that kind of raises some questions in your mind, that's good because that's actually the point. 
of both of these ceremonies. Verse verse 14, and when the time to come and when in time to come, meaning for future generations, your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. So so both of these rituals, both um, you know, the thing with the firstborn, the feast of unleavened bread, both of these are designed to be rituals of remembering. That's why Moses says there'll be like a, a mark on your hand or frontlets uh, between your eyes. That would be like something you actually would pin or wear to your forehead. They're designed to ensure that the Israelites never forget w- what God has done for them by saving them from slavery in Egypt. Like, I remember when I was in middle school, I used to make marks on my hand all the time to try to remember stuff. You know, this was in the days before phones, kids. So I, I, I just had, you know, a Sharpie in my pocket. I'd write permission slip on the back and Odds are I'd be bringing that sucker to school the next day. Shauna actually had a a student in one of her classes back when she was a first grade teacher who took this to a whole nother level. He was so notoriously bad at, at, at remembering stuff that he would show up to school with objects pinned to his clothing. You know, stuff like a note to a teacher or that day's money, literally a Ziploc bag with cash and coins jingling in it, just like pinned to the front of his coat because... Uh, if his mom put it in his backpack or in his pocket, he would never remember it. He probably wouldn't even eat lunch that day, you know? But then he shows up to school and Sean is like, uh, what's, what's pinned to your jacket? He's like, oh yeah, here, here's my lunch money for the day. There you go. So this is exactly how God wants these rituals to work for the Israelites. Like he, he knows that we as human beings, we're like that first grader. You know, we are notoriously bad at, at, at remembering things. We have a ridiculously short memory when it comes to spiritual things. God just keeps getting pushed out of our mind all of the time. So, like something pinned to your forehead, a, a frontlet over your eyes, you know, these rituals, every time someone would ask you, like, what's on your forehead or why are you doing that thing with your donkey, you would tell them how God bought your freedom from slavery and that now you belong to him. That's what these are for. And and the key truth that I think Moses would want the the next generation uh, to to take from this is just that. It's that we belong to God. All of us, all of ourselves, all of our animals, all of our children, we are God's people, his possession. Second verse of the the, the passage, we read, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. God says, it's mine. Why? It's because of the Passover. It's because of what Tim covered last week. When, when God saved the Israelites through the blood of the lamb that was smeared on their doorpost, he, he was purchasing them. It's what the word redeem means. It means to, 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 buy, to buy back, often from slavery, which was literal for the uh, Israelites at this time. So when every couple has their firstborn child, they are vividly reminded of the fact that every future generation of Israelites belongs to God when they have to go sacrifice a lamb to take back possession of their firstborn son, to redeem him through the blood of a sacrifice. The blood of the lamb saved your firstborn at the Passover. The blood of the lamb saves your firstborn right now because we belong to God. Never forget that. That's what Moses is saying here. Section 2. Hauling a corpse following a cloud. The weirdness just keeps on rolling. Verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. That would be like along the coast, a pretty natural route, although that was near. For God said, 
lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Okay, make a little mental note of that thing with the Philistines there. We're going to go, we're going to come back to that a lot later. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So literally, equipped for battle means like in groups of, of, of 50s. Not, that doesn't mean that they're like totally ready to fight, as we're going to see as this story moves forward. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. This would be the Joseph who was sold into slavery so many generations ago. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry, my up, carry up my bones with you from here, from Egypt. Do any of you remember that little tidbit from the end of, end of Genesis? Okay, we taught through Genesis, I think maybe 12 years ago here. So if you've got that great of a memory, I, I honor you. But the last three verses of the scroll of Genesis read this. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. That's the land of Canaan. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him. So this wasn't just, you know, like bones that they were carrying up, but more like a mummy. Anyone been to the old curiosity shop? Picture that dude going with him on on the Exodus. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so here... When Moses now goes and he retrieves the corpse of Joseph and brings it along for the ride to Exodus, it's just showing God's faithfulness in here and and wrapping up that storyline from so long ago. Get it wrapping up? Pun intent, like a mummy. Verse 20. And they moved on from Sukkot and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. So all of this, both of these kind of two little episodes in this section, emphasizing two big things for future generations, especially that that next generation, which is standing on the banks of the Jordan River, God is with you and God is faithful. That same God who who led you in the the pillar of cloud and fire in the desert will lead you into the land of Canaan. You can do this. That that same God who faithfully predicted the Exodus and faithfully predicted that you will conquer the land of Canaan way back in the time of Joseph and faithfully preserved his body so his bones could be carried with them in the Exodus, that same God has also predicted the conquering of the land. It's going to happen. You can do this. Section 3 now, the big one, crossing the sea. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirot, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. They're totally lost. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Does that sound familiar? And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So basically God 
I don't like the crafty general here. He's running a feint. He's, you know, he's making it look like the, the people are just lost, wandering in the wilderness, totally vulnerable. And because God hardened his heart, Pharaoh totally takes the bait. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. Read in there, by God. And they said, what is this that we have done? that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot, took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. So the chosen chariots, uh, based on archaeological research, these were the ones with the custom rims, leather interior, and the other chariots could have, so there were 600 of those. There could have been 600 other chariots too. We don't know. Maybe even more than that. The, the, the point of all this section here is that Israel's totally outmatched. They are facing a technologically superior foe and a militarily, mili, you know, mil, militarily, literally su, su, superior foe. Boy, I didn't write that one down. I should have written it down and practiced it. And they're probably going to get torched unless God is with them. Verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Yet again, you could like, I, I mean, this would, you could like ring a bell every time God hardens Pharaoh's heart in this, in this narrative right here. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pahaharot in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near... The people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, literally, look, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. Rightly so. I mean, this was a setup for slaughter. They're they're trapped on all sides with Pharaoh's army coming the other way. What are they going to do? So, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, and just one of the most powerful statements of, of faith in the entire Bible, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, these ones rushing at you in chariots, the ones that are making your heart quail and dread, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, ding, again, so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them, you know, where it had been leading them, and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. 
And there, right there between them, was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So really what this does right here is buy the Israelites some time. Remember, I mean, they've got these chariots bearing down on them. So in a beautiful image of how God saves, God steps between his people and their enemies and he shields them with himself. The Egyptians are cut off by the cloud of God's presence. They can't go past it. They can't see what's happening on the other side. And meanwhile, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, which really makes it pretty clear that this is a deep water situation. That, that we're talking about here. That word for wall actually refers specifically to like the walls of a city. It's like something massive. We're talking huge, you know, towering walls on, on either side of them. This is a miracle on a spectacular scale. Something that, that like boggles the mind of most of us in our culture. But, you know, when you think about it, not really something that hard for the God of the universe to do. Right? Re- remember, one of the first acts of creation that we read about in the, ver- in, in the book of Genesis was God divided the waters and the dry land. He just speaks and, and, and God, and it happens. You go here, you go here, there, that's perfect. Waters and dry land divided. So that's just exactly what this powerful creator God does right here, but on a much smaller localized scale. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen And in the morning watch, so this would be like right at dawn, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces, on the Egyptian forces, and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, once again, messing with their minds and clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The Lord fights for them. This is, you know, this is the Egyptians basically preaching the gospel right here. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord through the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord, saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This right here is what salvation looks like. This right here is how seeing God transforms a community. 
Now, I love how the narrative just emphasizes this remarkable transformation of the Israelites here by using the image of sight, like, like what they're seeing at, at, at different points in the, in the story. Back in verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and look, behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, were, were marching after them and they feared greatly, right? They see and they fear. And then what do we read right here at the end? Last two verses, very end of the chapter, verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians, they're looking at them again, dead on the seashore, washing ashore with every wave. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people now fear again, but they feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. From fear at the beginning to fear at the end. Terror at their enemies to reverence toward God. From, from panicking when they see them, these guys you know, rushing at them with their chosen chariots to worshiping as they see their enemies dead on the seashore. Wave after wave after wave washing up there. No longer fearing the Egyptians, but fearing the Lord. Which leaves no room for any other fear in their hearts. It's It's beautiful. This transformation is really uh, exactly what Moses hopes the story will do for future generations of Israelites. That, that they will look at, you know, at what happened to, the, to their father's generation and know what, whatever the odds, no matter how trapped they feel, one central truth of the Bible, and that is that salvation belongs to the Lord. It belongs to him. Salvation is not something that you achieve for yourself in any way. Salvation is what God achieves for you. You know, to, the, to that generation that now is standing on the shores of the Jordan River faced with this daunting task of, you know, taking over the land, Moses is saying the same thing that he said to their fathers on the shore of the Red Sea. Fear not, my children, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Praise the Lord which is exactly what Moses does next in chapter 15, the song. A song that really, as we, as we read it, 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 it causes our eyes to look in four different directions. Backward, Godward, outward, and forward. First backward. Verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They 
sank like lead in the mighty waters. So pretty much that right there is all of chapter 14 of Exodus, right? That is the the story of the Red Sea, that big long narrative we just went over in 10 verses of poetry. And, and, And what this first part of the song shows us is that worship is essentially a response. It's a response to God's work. Like worship isn't something that, you know, we generate through effort or something that we have to, you know, conjure up from our, our, our spiritual depths by getting in the right mood or, you know, having the fog machines or, or anything like that. No, worship is the natural response to seeing God as he truly is and knowing his salvation as he freely gives it. Then we worship, which is so clear when we turn our eyes in direction number two, looking Godward. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders like parting this Red Sea? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength, to your holy abode. Can, can you hear the awe in those lines? Just the, the, the wonder of it. Can you hear the gratitude? I mean, these lines right here, they're, they're the essence of worship. It's declaring God's worth. It's kind of the root of our word worship in English is from that. Worship, worthship, declaring God's worth, which is exactly what Moses does here for all to hear. And that That larger perspective is where Moses goes next when he starts inviting us to look outward. Verse 14. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people pass by, O Lord, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. So I got to point out some irony here. Like this, this is the second time that the Philistines have come up in our passage today. Do you remember that first time back in chapter 13 when I said make a mental note of this? Because God doesn't want to lead them by the Philistines because he's thinking, oh man, the, the people of Israel are going to see war and they're going to want to turn back to Egypt, right? So they're, they're afraid of the Philistines. Well now, post-Red Sea, Moses brings up the Philistines again, but who's afraid this time? It's not the Israelites. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Right? The, the Philistines are the ones who are, who are frightened when they hear about what happened at the Red Sea. The, the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. That would be encouraging if you were standing on the banks of the Jordan River. This is just a, a, a total turning of tables. That is what salvation does. Final direction, looking forward into the future. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. What we have here is a look into the future in the form of worship. God will bring his people to his home, and God will reign as king for all eternity. End of song. And then our passage concludes with a summary, verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea, The Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. 
Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron and of Moses, by the way, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You know, how appropriate that we end our passage today with the way that, that we began it. An invitation to worship. A call from the lips of Miriam through the pen of Moses to all of us here this morning. Sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. Will you answer this call? Can you sing the song of Moses? You know, I mentioned at the beginning how these songs in the Bible can uh, feel disruptive in the text, maybe even intrusive to the reader, because they, they don't just let you be a passive, passive observer of the story. They, they pull you in. They, they, they invite you to be a participant, a, a proclaimer, a worshiper. But are you? You know, I think about a time... Um, later in Israel's history, long after the Red Sea, long after the conquering of Canaan, when the whole nation is in exile, far from the shores of the Red Sea, far from the banks of the Jordan River, by the waters of Babylon, where they sit down to weep. Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. How shall we seek the Lord's song? in a foreign land. Is, is this where you are this morning? Is this where your spirit sits, broken, in exile, feeling the weight of sin, the grief, by the waters of Babylon? If that's where you sit this morning, there is hope. Hope in Jesus Christ. Which is why right here on the shores of the Red Sea, this is not the last place that we encounter this song in the Bible. This is very interesting to me. At the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we hear once again the song of Moses being sung by those who stand on another shore. Revelation 15.2, John writes, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea, sound familiar? Sea of glass with harps of God in their hand. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb, capital L, the Song of Jesus. And that's because these two songs are one and the same. They are one song of victory for those who who felt like they were defeated, a song of salvation for those who were trapped and oppressed and suffering under the onslaught of a terrible adversary who, through God's power, got to see their enemy crushed to the uttermost and God's grace displayed in all of its glory. If you are in Jesus, you can sing this song. You will sing this song 
because salvation belongs to the Lord, and in Jesus, you belong to him. You know, I thought about ending this sermon by going back through that whole song, you know, all of the, the 19 verses of it, and just pointing out the ways that a Christian could sing every single line with gusto because of what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. Every word, it is as, as true for us this morning as it was for those standing on the seashore that day. But instead, I'd like us to just zero in on one verse for the sake of reflection. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. What, what a beautiful summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, like... If I was an old Puritan preacher, I'd probably have us spend the next eight weeks going through this, this verse right here. Just, you know, breaking it down one word at a time. Take us nine months or nine years to get through Exodus, but who cares, right? That's what we do. If I was a Christian biker, this is what I would choose to have tattooed on my bicep. If I had a really cool van, I would get it airbrushed on the side. If I was that kid in Shauna's class, I would have my mom pin it to my coat. You know, you get what I'm saying? Like, This verse is a summary of the gospel. This verse is exactly what God does for all of us here this morning who are in Jesus Christ. You have led, meaning God is the one who initiates salvation. He has guided, meaning he sustains salvation. He he brings us to himself. He calls us and leads us not by a pillar of cloud, but by the presence and power of his spirit. God does all of this to create a community, to create a people, his people, a family that belongs to him, adopted through the blood of Jesus Christ, because these are the people that he redeemed, that he purchased for himself, not through the death of Pharaoh's firstborn, but now in Jesus through the death of his firstborn, the true Passover lamb by whose blood we are bought, we are sealed, no returns. Why? Because all of this is not based on on our strength, but his strength. Not on our loveliness, but his steadfast love for us. God is the subject of every verb in this verse, not us. Which means that the work that he began in us, he will carry to completion in the day of Christ Jesus by carrying us all the way home to his abode, new creation, will every single one of us will stand by the sea and sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So can you do it? Can you answer Miriam's call here, this, this call to worship? You know, the Israelites found their voice when they stood on the other side of the sea in the light of dawn with their enemy crushed before them. We sit this morning on the other side of a blood-stained cross in an empty tomb. Let us sing to the Lord, for in Jesus he has triumphed gloriously. Pray with me, please. Father, our only hope is in you. Our only hope is what you have done in Jesus Christ. We have no strength on our own. We have nothing to offer, nothing to bring to the table. We are trapped, trapped by our sin, trapped by our enemies. And we cry out to you, Lord knowing that you and you alone save. Thank you for the hope of Jesus. Thank you for the presence of your spirit who leads us and guides us. 
Thank you for all the ways that you have blessed us with every heavenly blessing in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, and in whose name we now worship. Amen.